the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. Delighted to have you here with us this morning. I'm standing in for uh, Dr. John Duganthony, uh, who is away. And a good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to our guests who are joining us from the Arab region and other parts of the United States and from across the planet. A special thank you and welcome today's, to today's featured speaker, Center for Strategic and International Studies Emeritus Chair in Strategy, Dr. Anthony H. Cordesman. Dr. Cordesman is a national treasure and someone who is trusted by leaders both domestically and abroad for his insights, analysis, findings, conclusion, and trailblazing research. His complete biography, of course, is available at the CSIOS website and at the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations website as well. We are also pleased to welcome today, as today's moderator, uh, David Desroches, Associate Professor at the Near East South Asia Center for Strategic Studies at the National Defense University. Dave also serves as a Senior International Affairs Fellow at the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. Dave also has many talents and for the past several years has been frequent television commentator, commentator on Arabic satellite television. As a caveat, Dave is speaking on behalf of himself and his views and opinions do not reflect the United States government, the NISA Center, or the National Council. This morning, guided by Dave, Dr. Cordesman will discuss his January 30th, 2023 report, 143 pages in length, with key data and charts to support his analysis and findings. The report, titled, The Strategic Importance of the Middle East and North Africa, The Strengths and Limits of Middle East and North Africa Oil and Gas Wealth, and the Challenge of Climate Change. It is available to view at your leisure at the CSIS website, and a link will also be shared on the National Council's website. In short, the report focuses on the energy and other economic aspects of the strategic importance of the region, which is dominated by its current and future oil and gas exports. A great place to start to, to start is with the table of contents contained within this report. Should guests wish to submit questions, you can email them to questions at ncusar.org. Again, questions at ncusar.org in addition to the many questions already submitted in advance to Dave DeRoche. With that introduction, and thanks again to today's guests, allow me now to turn the program over to today's moderator, David DeRoche. David. Thank you, Pat. It's an honor to uh, appear on any National Council event, and it's an especial honor for me to appear alongside Dr. Cordesman, who is well known to those of us in the community. Uh, when he produces his prolific uh, output, uh, it's a major event for analysts of the region. Uh, I always have to repeat the warning, uh, don't click on the link if you are traveling and subject to cell phone roaming charges as a friend of mine got hit with $35 uh, for roaming fees downloading one of Dr. Cordesman's reports. Uh, it, it's always uh, encyclopedic. There's much to discuss, much to chew over, and more than a little bit to argue with. So uh, to have uh, such a such a resource uh, with us to go over his work is quite an honor. And I think, Dr. Korsman, I'd like to start on slide 23. Um, people have been talking about energy transitions. And Mark, if you could put up uh, slide 23, please. That uh, is deals with the Middle East dominating uh, uh, energy exports. Now, I'll um, hand the floor over to you to go over that. And then... Uh, uh, we'll move on when uh, you give me the cue. 
I think that when you look at this, you look at what the current structure of one aspect of energy is, and it's a critical aspect. But we need to remember that we are today watching a period in which fossil fuels have steadily increased their importance on a global basis for almost a century and a half. And that time may well be ending. When you look at oil, it is not as bad as coal, but it is a source of major emissions problems in a period of global warming. And the question is, how much of that trend is actually going to apply in the future? When you look at the share of the Middle East, we also need to remember that we are on the edge of Russia's problems in deciding where its energy exports are going in the future and how that will affect the exports of the Middle East and the share you see there. And there's another set of calculations that is almost equally critical. If you look at the International Energy Agency, we tend to think of the developed countries as the major source of increase in energy demand. That no longer seems to be the case. Almost all of the projections for the International Energy Agency for major increases in energy demand come from places like China and India, not from the OECD or the more developed countries. And that means that the, if there was no global warming problem, you would have a massive shift in the direction of Middle Eastern energy exports. So this in some ways is a graph of the past and only part of the past. Yeah, and of course, in the uh, American domestic argument over um, climate change, uh, the, that shift in the, the growth of uh, India and China is of course a major a sticking point. Mark, if we can move to slide 25, please. These are OPEC estimates of crude oil exports. And um, uh, that builds on that point that you just said, the, the, the rise in uh, non-traditional markets away from the West in the United States. Well, again, part of the problem we face and that everybody who is looking at these graphs or the data needs to understand these are sources of massive uncertainty. Uh, one of the key factors, for example, is much of this sort of shift is driven by estimates that India will basically develop and in some ways become a major power in economic terms, somewhat similar to China over the period between now and 2050. That, like almost any estimate of development, is very controversial. None of these estimates that you see from OPEC, for reasons best known to OPEC, take climate change into account. And oddly enough, the same is true of the United States. Our Energy Information Agency projections essentially do not adjust to the impact of climate change. And as yet, of course, no one can estimate exactly what is going to happen because of the war in the Ukraine where you may see a lasting shift as Europe has to turn to the Middle East for oil and gas, 
within the limits imposed by climate change, Russia has to find new sources of exports, perhaps to China. This is probably one of the least stable situations in terms of making projections that we've seen in energy since the early 70s. Yeah, and building on that, slide 50, please. Um, the Asian overdependence on oil and coal. Um, you know, if, if uh, again, the Western climate reduction targets are uh, uh, much larger in percentage than the uh, requirements for emerging economies, of which China is still considered one and India is definitely one. Um, so do you see this as a uh, ongoing trend or do you see this as something? Is this wishful thinking? Is this erroneous thinking or what do, what do you make of this uh, Asian uh, and over-dependence on oil and coal? Well, you're asking a very good question. I think one of the problems is that at least as yet, no one can actually estimate how serious the impacts of climate change really are. There's no longer a debate about its importance. But for example, in the United States, as we've seen in California, or even in places like Vermont, where minor climate change of all things is basically reducing the supply of maple syrup, these small episodes for any given country have a critical impact already, but no one knows how quickly they're going to drive overall investment, massive changes in economics. The cost of dealing with climate change for both the developing and the developed world is extraordinarily high. And it's easy to say we'll deal with climate change, but the question is, will we? And how many of these plans are actually going to be funded? So you asked about coal, and it's a critical issue. But oddly enough, as a result of the Ukraine war, the consumption of coal on a global level went up last year as people tried to find a substitute for gas and for oil. And for developing countries, shifting out of coal into gas or to oil is still a major investment. And how many will really do it and how quickly is uncertain. The one thing we do know is for the developing world, yes. Basically speaking, in spite of politics, particularly Europe, but most countries that were importing coal on this chart are making major cuts. At a minimum, they're trying to shift to gas and oil. Yeah. So moving to slide 57, and these segues are going remarkably smooth. I have to compliment you for that. Uh, slide 57, we look at OPEC estimates of regional uh, crude and gas imports. And um, uh, we see that uh, imports are still substantial, but uh, the rise in Asian, particularly of gas, is quite noticeable. I mean, um, how, first off, is, is that a trend? And do you think that that trend will... Uh, is accurately projected, has a possibility of viability, or is this just a guess? Well, I think, again, uh, it probably is unrealistic mm -hmm. to have a kind of business-as-usual estimate of oil and gas demand. Now, these figures first were, as all current estimates are, 
made before people really began to wonder what the impact of the Ukraine war would be on the overall pattern of gas and oil exports. They don't take any real aspect of climate change into account, and they tend to make favorable assumptions about economic growth in the developing world. Remember, the developing world includes Africa, Central Asian states, a very wide range of additional states to China and India. I think that basically speaking, it is also in some of these estimates, a matter of hoping that developing countries will import gas. And importing gas is much more difficult in some ways than importing oil. You first have to convert it, in many cases, to liquid gas. You have to handle movement by ship. And you have to do it in extraordinarily large volumes and invest in it while well, you already, in the case of most developing countries, have serious economic problems and serious government deficit problems. We tend to, I think, hope that the future is going to be a much better place than it actually may be. Josh. So moving to slide 67, speaking of the future, uh, British Petroleum uh, can afford a crystal ball. And they looked at uh, oil and gas through 2050. And what do we see of that? Um, again, uh, you know, it's, it's a guess. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that is, at least from a climate change perspective, you know, natural gas does burn cleaner than any other fossil fuel. Uh, and there is significant infrastructure investment. But I think that with the, uh, uh, the, unsuitability of Russian pipelines to Europe, at least, we're starting to see uh, more investment in long-range transport of natural gas, and perhaps there will be an economy of scale that might benefit uh, lesser developed countries. What do you think of that? Well, I think the question is uh, economies of scale, basically, when you have to create an entire new infrastructure, mm -hmm. it's very doubtful that you're going to see very many of them. And whatever happens, it's unlikely that you're going to see developments in moving liquid natural gas that are going to cut the prices relative to the relative ease of shipping oil. Mm. For many developing countries, this is a very real issue because they already have problems in financing imports and significant deficits in their trade balances. Many probably more than a quarter of the developing countries are really already in serious economic trouble. And we don't use the phrase failed states anymore, but whenever you hear the phrase fragile states, it basically is a euphemism for failed states. That really out of the list of countries in the world is more than a quarter at this point in time by a lot of international estimates. So again, you look at these figures and can these countries really import gas? Can they convert to 
what are going to be probably cheaper, here your economies of scale get to be critical, alternative fuels, solar, geothermal, wind, and the rest. Can they do it at the scale and the rate needed to deal with global warming? And remember that global warming, almost regardless of whether we cut emissions, will be imposing its own costs on mm -hmm. poor developing countries, just as it will on developing, developed countries. So this yeah. is an extremely complex situation. I think what you do see on this graph, though, is if global warming is serious, then the world is going to have to be serious. And if the world's going to be serious, what that graph tells you is what you saw earlier in the OPEC projections can't take place. You're going to have to make massive cuts in oil and gas use, and that will have a massive impact on the Middle East. Slide 69 shows the same projection, but by a different organization, this time the IEA. Um, anything stick out to you there? Uh, anything that might lead you to modify or uh, 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 well, I think pull the, your punch on your last projection? Well, as you pointed out, BP is an energy company. And that's an important distinction because if I was talking about it even a few years ago, like Exxon, I'd be talking about an oil company, not even a gas exporter. Mm -hmm. Here we have something very different. The International Energy Agency doesn't have an inherent tie to the energy industry. Its analyses cover all technologies for energy, and it is focused on what happens with climate change. Now, if you look at that graph on the far right, you see just how serious the cuts could be in the demand for oil and gas exports. And remember that exports are the area of marginal demand. If you already have limited oil and gas resources and you are dealing with that climate change model, you may not need to import because you now need to import. You have enough to meet these kinds of limited demands. If you look at the two graphs on the left, what you see are estimates of existing policy or much more limited increases to deal with the problem of global warming. And these are official estimates, at least mm -hmm. on the left in theory, these are what countries are already doing. And it's not that different when you look at the model, the middle graph. This is what Europe, the United States, Japan, Korea, developed countries have already committed themselves to, as well as those developing countries, which have done a sort of look at climate change. And again, these trends, at least the middle and the right trend, would have a massive impact on the economy of the Middle East. Because basically, there are no other major exports coming out of the Middle East region. When you look at some of the studies that have been done of comparative 
imports of basic materials and manufactured goods without an almost total conversion of the economic structure of countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and the rest, you basically would have no clear source of exports. Can you uh, just, for, for those who haven't spent as much time with the charts as you and I have, explain what the three models are that are shown in that chart, just the significance of them? Well, the model on the far right is what you would need to do to achieve something approaching zero emissions. That would be all of the fossil fuels that contribute to global warming. The middle one is what would happen if countries were driven to make a somewhat more advanced cut than they now plan. To the extent that countries plan cuts for global warming, and many don't, it's mostly the developed countries that have plans to deal with global warming, you see the trends in the graph on the far left. And there are, here again, these are graphs that countries have publicly committed themselves to in terms of what they're already planning to do to respond to global warming on the one hand, the left, or what they would have to do if global warming is treated truly seriously. Again, that... <laughs> this is not what could happen if the problem became even more serious than we currently estimate. Right. So if we can, now one of the problems that we haven't anticipated uh, which rose up in the midst of you know a decades-long wrangling over global warming. If we can show slide 85, please. Is the uh, outbreak of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the, the Russian-Ukrainian war. Uh, and I guess from an energy perspective, uh, there were two bad things that happened or two disruptive things. One was the uh, outbreak of the war itself. And the second was the uh, prolonged Ukrainian resistance. Uh, the energy markets could probably adapt to uh, uh, Russian uh, military success in Ukraine more easily than it can to a prolonged war between Ukraine and Russia and the uncertainty that brings. Uh, but you, you point out here that um, there's a shift in Russian energy exports. Can you speak to that for a bit, please? Well, what has happened is that countries that basically are not subject to sanctions or not don't support sanctions of Russia, particularly China, but there are a wide range of other developing states, have basically imported from Russia to the extent they can. In contrast, and here you do already see some important shifts, Europe faced what they thought would be a major crisis in gas supplies and in gas stocks at the start of last fall. In practice, they were able to find alternative sources of exports of gas, some of them from the Middle East, some of them from North America. And they also had a very good winter. In the process, they began to quite seriously try to reduce the need for the demand for fossil fuels. 
So some of the aspects of climate change modeling that we saw in those previous charts underestimated the shift in Europe. It is moving much more quickly towards reducing its demand for oil and gas. And I should point one thing out here that we haven't mentioned, but may come to later. We've been talking about oil and gas. Mm -hmm. Remember that no one is attempting to produce transportation based on gas as yet. There are some considerations. Large trucks, for example, could basically run on other forms of fuel. One that's been proposed is hydrogen. Another is liquid gas. But basically speaking, the one area in the transport sector where you can't use oil and gas, uh, basically gas, is vehicles. And this is why recently Europe announced that it would basically say all cars had to be electric by 2035. Now, we don't have plans anywhere near that drastic as yet in the U.S. But remember, there is a very important component of the shifts to deal with global warming that people actually are implementing. And that basically is the cars almost all of us drive are not going to be legal <laughs> in the future. Yeah. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I could just see myself uh, uh, becoming a uh, uh, leader of the Subaru cartel here in Bethesda, uh, selling uh, parts to keep them going. We saw when uh, Freon was uh, criminalized, uh, uh, used in uh, air conditioning, and it caused immense damage to the ozone. Um, for a while in southern Florida, Freon, illegal imports of Freon were three times as as uh, lucrative as cocaine uh, in the 1990s. So <laughs> maybe we'll see that with cars. Slide 91. Uh, when people look at Russia, and obviously, you know, you have that disruption to the market and their traditional exports, and a lot of it is natural gas, which, as you mentioned earlier, requires an immense investment in fixed infrastructure. Um, so they're shifting Russia is shifting to countries that do not participate in sanctions against it. Uh, but this slide shows that that will be a very drawn out process. And your, your um, estimate is not sanguine. Can you address that for a bit? Well, again, remember one of the problems we have is our estimates basically don't take the Ukraine war into full account yet. And none of us know when or how it will end, or what the impact will be on Russia's relations with Europe or with China. So when you look at these graphs, you have to remember that at least as yet, none of us can predict some of the most critical aspects of the future. Some people have postulated at least that Russia will attempt to shift its export routes south through Turkey. Another potential is to shift exports into the Indian Ocean area, which is probably more a matter of theory than practice. Creating new markets in terms of pipelines or LNG exports to China is still another option. 
And here, the rivalry between the West, the United States, NATO, countries like Japan and South Korea, and both China and Russia creates the possibility that the chart you see here may be totally misleading. Because mm -hmm. costly as it is in normal economic terms, if China and Russia basically create a structure to move Russian fossil fuels to China, particularly gas, it gives China immunity in many ways from its current dependence on the flow of oil and gas by sea all the way through the Straits of Malacca and up the coast to China. And it is a major security issue. It also, if Russia trusts China, means that Russia is no longer dependent on Europe. So the strategic outcome here is something which in a lot of ways is going to depend on how bad, or at least how bitter, the tensions are between Russia, Europe, and the United States as the Ukraine war proceeds and hopefully ends. Yeah, let's jump to slide 109. Uh, you mentioned uh, China's dependence on uh, key maritime shipping routes that transit at least one choke point, the Straits of Malacca, but generally also transits the Strait of Hormuz. And uh, uh, it's the one after that, please, Mark. The next slide. Not, not, yeah, that's it. Um, so what we see here is uh, arguably uh, an immense strategic threat uh, from a Chinese perspective. And uh, analysts of China have posited that the whole Belt and Road Initiative, which initially uh, from a Western perspective grew out of a maritime thing called the String of Pearls that was designed to secure this, is doing it. Is it possible that the uh, uh, Western sanctions on Russia has proven to be a gift to China by forcing them to look at this sort of overland route and in investment? Well, it's possible. And I think the problem is a lot of things are possible. And to be honest, <laughs> uh, there's some things you can't really predict. You can have an opinion, but the numbers simply don't allow it. But remember here, you look at that green line and you have to realize it doesn't just supply China. It supplies major industrial powers like Japan, and South Korea. It supplies Taiwan, Indon, and uh, Thailand, and a host of other countries. So any war that affects these routes of supply basically affects not only China, but Asia. It affects the United States. People often don't realize how dependent the United States is on imports of manufactured goods. And this whole supply issue, which we saw become critical during COVID, becomes equally critical if there's a war in this region. Now, the problem you have is, well, we who are Middle East experts tend to focus on the Middle East conflicts. The fact is that you have very serious planning now in the United States and in China for a possible war over Taiwan. If that war occurs, it could affect virtually all of these supply lines and supply routes. 
And it wouldn't just be China that's vulnerable. It would be, for example, Korea and Japan, which would be supporting and basing some US facilities. It would be all of the countries basically outside or beyond the Strait of Malacca and possibly even conflicts in the Indian Ocean. It's very difficult to know how much this could escalate. And of course, it is not a war which is by any means certain. But you really, when you're sitting in the Middle East and you're worried about what's happening in Syria and Iran and a host of internal conflicts, you tend to forget that your export situation could just as easily be affected, not simply by the sudden outburst of conflict between the Ukraine and Russia, but by a truly major war in Asia. And uh, it's worth pointing out one of my little tidbits of knowledge, whenever you see the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, in his uniform, the shirt he wears is made in Vietnam, as are all the U.S. Army dress shirts. So the, uh, uh, the ties with Asia run deep. Um, slide 122, uh, you touched on this, the U.S. Uh, interdependence upon other countries and uh, the fact that American prosperity, in spite of America's own domestic energy situation, ability to support ourselves, we can't remain a prosperous nation unless we have robust trading engagements. And if we're the only country who's rich and can afford the trade, but nobody can afford to buy our products or produce products that we import, we will not be a prosperous nation. This is a kind of complex argument, uh, particularly in this uh, day and age. So let me give you some time to explain what we're looking at, please. Well, I think part of the problem is that people in the United States have tended to assume we have energy independence because we basically export now as much energy as we import, and we basically are not a major importer of oil and gas from the Middle East. And in a way, that's true. The projections that are being made by the Energy Information Agency in the US, I think broadly by virtually every oil and gas or energy company, are that the US will not become dependent again on imports through at least 2050. The problem is that refers to oil and gas. As I mentioned, and as you pointed out with the slides we showed earlier, Asia is critically dependent on the flow of Middle Eastern oil and gas today. And Asia is a major exporter of manufactured goods to the United States. It is so large an exporter of manufactured goods to the United States, and they've grown so quickly, that we are at least as dependent today on the flow of oil and gas to Asia and their ability to produce manufactured goods, the export to the United States in terms of the total value of exports as we were when we were most dependent directly on oil and gas imports to the US. 
The problem here is one of global economic interdependence. The U.S. share of global manufacturing capability and actually the most advanced manufactured exports has dropped precipitously now for over 25 years. And with that, we have tended to export services and technology. And with it, we have become more and more dependent on what other countries can get by way of energy imports. So we are at least as dependent today on Middle Eastern energy exports as we were when we were directly importing oil and gas. We don't have energy independence. We are tied to global economics and it isn't going to go away. So um, in the context of the Russian invasion, uh, you know, one of the things we're looking at uh, is Europe, of course, is drastically increasing its rate of uh, LNG imports from uh, sources other than Russia, Norway, Algeria, et cetera. Is there any indication, have you seen that, uh, you know, Europe, of course, can pay more for this than developing countries, which might be closer. Europe can pay more for Algerian national, natural gas than can Tunisia. Um, have you seen any indication of that? Is there, is there sort of a market displacement that's working to the uh, negative on, on lesser developed countries or developing countries? Well, so far we have not seen that you have had gas or oil be a critical shift away from the needs of developing countries today. The problem, and you raise a very good point, is how competitive will this be in the future if this extends over the years and you see a competition for exports but the problem that you get into there is when you really think about it, if this extends over time, Russia will almost certainly have found an alternative place to export. Mm -hmm. Europe, if it continues to import oil and gas, will have basically found substitutes for Russian oil and gas exports, but Russia will be exporting to somewhere else. That's not, however, the projection that we seem to see so far. In the preliminary studies being made by the International Energy Agency, and they are very preliminary, and by others, Europe is beginning to look at ways to reduce its dependence on fossil fuels more quickly. So instead of having a major continuing shift to LNG imports, you may see Europe speed up the rate at which it uses alternative energy supplies. And that means it would not be putting pressure on the developing states. The other thing is we over the years have always felt that the developing countries are the countries with the most serious increases in energy demand. Well, looking at manufacturing capabilities and need and efficiency, again, many of the projections of energy demand indicate 
it isn't the developed countries that will be demanding the most serious increases in energy. Some of the projections, one just made by the International Energy Agency, are that 80% of the increase in demand for energy between now and 2050 will come from the developing world, which includes China and the other countries outside the OECD. That's a very major shift. And it is a fundamental shift in the role of global economies if it actually happens. We have a question from the audience about, um, have you found any uh, uh, viable alternative? Uh, it's about the uh, negative environmental side effects of uh, alternative energy. So obviously um, oil you know, the and natural gas has become kind of a, you know, we know what it does and what it doesn't do. When we're looking at ramping up to, say, batteries, uh, the extraction of nickel, copper, cobalt, lithium, especially, uh, that's associated with a lot of environmental damage. Have you seen any assessment of that or any comparison of that with the uh, environmental damage caused by fossil fuels? I guess perhaps exclusive of uh, climate change. Well, I think, again, most of the damage done through alternative energy sources is local. And a lot of it is inherently controllable. So you might basically pollute a lake or you might damage a local area, but you are not going to be having a global or national impact if you properly manage it. That scarcely makes it harmless. But to be perfectly honest, when you look at the patterns of development we're projecting, you can't have development today without creating a host of environmental issues. And have we seen a valid projection of how shifting to alternative energy supplies in terms of local environmental impacts it compares with the other aspects of development. I have not seen models that represent non-ideological views. And it's yeah. basically because we don't have the data. We simply don't know enough as yet to make these kinds of projections. In the worst case, we're all dead, but it's not really not a very helpful form of analysis. <laughs> but it does have a certain mordant, trenchant <laughs> nature to it. That uh... It does get your attention. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, another question from the audience. Uh, with the emphasis on climate change, the development of alternate energy and the shift away from fossil fuels, do you see any evidence of OPEC, OPEC plus um, adjusting uh, their strategic plan for when they can no longer do it? I mean, I suppose Vision 2030 and similar national development plans to shift from a hydrocarbon economy reflect that. But uh, uh, are we seeing progress there and are we seeing sort of a region-wide, industry-wide recognition of these shifts? You can turn to the major sort of oil companies. And again, today, some of them 
very clearly are seeking to be energy companies. And you'll see completely different sets of projections. Some of them ignore climate change, and some of them are very explicit about including it. OPEC, basically, if you look at their current literature, has not made a clear estimate of any shift towards major increases in gas exports. It is not focused on gas to the extent that its projections have focused on oil. And again, if you look at the data carefully, you'll see that OPEC has not really taken climate change into account in its projections. So basically, when you look at the OPEC data, it is almost deliberately ignoring the issue. Now, to people in the given countries that contribute to OPEC and people who actually work energy modeling in OPEC understand these issues, of course they do. But one problem is the moment OPEC becomes involved in basically projecting cuts in oil demand or goes from today's basic orientation toward oil, which is the major fossil fuel, not gas, to considering gas output, which involves very different balances in terms of income and economic interest within its members, it runs into a very wide range of political issues. And OPEC probably is going to be very careful about addressing. Yeah, yeah. We have a question from the audience. Uh, what's your assessment of the uh, gas discovery in the Eastern Mediterranean and uh, the quantity uh, you know, found there? Um, you know, first off, uh, is it economically significant? Can it help cause or help resolve some of the regional issues, I suppose, particularly in Lebanon and Cyprus? And, uh, you know, the political implications of it, I'm expanding on the question here, are really remarkable in that in at least one instance, you saw a de facto, I wouldn't say cooperation, but deconfliction between Hezbollah and Israel over an issue that, you know, requires major um, capital investment. Well, these are good questions. And I think that basically it is positive to see what's happened so far between Israel and the Hezbollah. The problem I think we all face is watching some of the tensions rising between Israel and the Palestinians. A lot of the progress that might have been made in relaxing these issues is progress we can't really count on. The actual level of supplies involved so far is relatively limited in a global sense. It's not large enough to alter the major flow of energy to, for example, Europe can be important to the countries immediately involved in terms of money. I think, I wish I could say that it would help Lebanon. But the problem that you really run into yeah. is not that the money wouldn't be valuable, but it's not clear anything can help Lebanon. Lebanon is not capable of helping itself. It isn't that much money. Israel is a much more efficient economy. 
It is the only country in the entire MENA region that is a major exporter of something other than energy. So its economy basically is more consuming energy supplies than it is one of exporting. Egypt is a different story. And here, again, a lot depends on what happens to the future of gas. But I think the answer to your question is these are very local benefits. They can help the country doing the exporting. They won't make a major difference to region-wide, that is European and Mediterranean energy exports. There simply isn't the potential volume, at least as yet. And how much good they do depends on how well the countries actually create effective development plans. And here, I think we are also talking about Greece and Turkey. We're talking about Egypt. There's a question about what happens in the future in terms of a focus on gas exports and how much effort will go into gas production in places like Libya or Algeria. These are areas where we simply don't understand as yet the economics of future demand. It's a good question and like a lot of questions, particularly the good ones, we don't have good answers. Well, you know, it's, it's um, one of the things I've noticed is a lot of the uh, things that are run efficiently in the Middle East are run by Lebanese. And the one major exception is Lebanon itself, unfortunately. Um, what efforts are, uh, let's, let's try this one. So non-OECD Asian countries. So when we look at developing countries in Asia and we look at alternative fuels, alternative energy, to a large part, this seems to be um, sort of a, a, almost a luxury of the West. You know, I mean, Britain uh, building huge wind farms, of course, the unique situation of North Sea wind, uh, uh, solar panels in the American Southwest and Saudi Arabia. But uh, what alternative energy do you see as being effective for developing countries that may not have the uh, capital or the sort of um, uh, developmental uh, cushion to shift from fossil fuels? Well, let me again be blunt. If you look at the figures from the UN Development Program, if you look at the data coming from the World Bank, sources like the IMF, one great problem you have is this phrase developing countries. In many cases, the development effort is remarkably badly managed and inefficient. It's often mortgaged through loans. Often it is not particularly efficient in what is being invested in. These situations really have to change. It isn't a matter of the cost of alternative fuels. Basically speaking, it's a matter if you're going to import any form of energy or you're going to provide energy itself, you have to have an effective development. Now, the marginal cost initially of alternative fuels can be high. But remember, once you bought solar panels, you bought solar panels. You're not going to keep importing 
them on a weekly or daily basis. Once you've created your own wind farms, they're very expensive to start, but the maintenance costs are marginal compared to importing fossil fuels every day. Some aspects of this are going to be very difficult, particularly for the poor and the worst managed developing countries. The truth is that failed states face truly major problems as failed states and energy is only one of every aspect of their economies. I think that's what you really have to consider. Don't separate the energy problem from the overall development problem. You may need loans if the country is efficiently managing its development program. If it isn't managing its development program and it's simply doubling up on loans or basically concentrating on developing marginal aspects of capability, then the issue of energy is only one part of the problem. And in many of these countries, the other shift you see, and it's critical particularly in the Middle East, is you do not see as yet reductions in the increase in population. So if you look at UN or other estimates of population growth, one of the reasons for their increased energy demand is not so much development in the sense of advanced economics, it's population growth and a shift away from agriculture to urbanization. That's going to be a critical problem again for a lot of countries. And it's true of most of the countries in the Middle East. We need to remember that even the countries in the Middle East that are energy exporters are often basically extremely fragile economies. Algeria is a case in point. And as we look at the other countries involved, basically speaking, uh, you need to have the resources of a Kuwait relative to population, or a Saudi Arabia, or the UAE today, to be able to claim you have any kind of energy wealth. This is going to be a critical issue for the countries that are not energy exporters. If you have a problem now, and you have a weak or fragile government, your problems are going to increase extremely sharply over time, and energy is only a subset of those problems. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, when I was reading the report, one of the charts, and I, I forgive me, I can't remember the number of the chart, but it looked at per capita um, distribution of uh, oil and natural gas wealth. And, you know, Algeria is a major producer of natural gas, but its population is so large that uh, the uh, revenue amounts to $703 per capita per year. Uh, I think which, that's chart 39, if we can bring it up, you raise a good issue. Yeah, it's it's a text chart, so I didn't include it in the original one. But uh, Kuwait, I think the number is like $18,000 per person uh, per year. And uh, so that's money that you can actually develop with. And of course, the challenge that Algeria has is, not only is it a large country or has a large population, but it's an extremely young population. Uh, it's a uh, 
extremely compacted population in limited space, mostly along a coastal strip, which is extremely vulnerable to climate change. And this is me speaking as a political scientist, their population has such expectations because of their exposure to um, uh, European uh, media and demands, and the state just can't reach that. Slide 39, I guess. But anyhow, it's, it's worth, you know, this just shows why it's uh, so worth uh, going through this and spending an afternoon with this report. Um, if I may make a point, I think first, one problem that we really have, We've talked about this, and I think it is characteristic that we tend to talk about the civil side. But one of the problems is the regional arms races. And in many ways, Algeria is an army with a country rather than a country with an army. You have massive arms imports, and that's not unusual in the region. But these come at the direct expense of development. Almost all of it's imported. There's no real economic benefit to people if there is some limited production of military equipment. And if this goes on as the population increases, it puts more and more pressure on limited resources. So one of the factors that you have to consider when you talk about any given economic subset is you can't separate the civil problems from the problems of making massive defense expenditures. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Algeria is the top importer of Russian weaponry. I know it has been in the top five for the last two, three decades. So that's a good point. Uh, we, we tend to view the guns versus butter argument only in American domestic terms, which is misleading because quite frankly, we can afford guns and butter. But uh, uh, countries that... Uh, have to make a choice. Um, the wrong choice has much more uh, profound implications. And building on that, we have a question from the audience. How can the Middle East maintain its strategic importance if or when uh, major reductions are made in fossil fuel usage uh, to counter the impacts of climate change? If uh, people do what they say they're going to do, does that uh, put reduce the Middle East to a backwater? I think the term backwater may be a little too much. But it's a very good question because, yes, that's exactly what does happen. Unless you diversify in countries like Saudi Arabia have made this a major aspect of their economic plan. It's always a challenge as to whether they can execute it. But at least some of the countries which are major oil and gas exporters have already considered this. And I think you have to realize that, again, when we talk about the Middle East, I think one of the key issues that you always have to bear in mind is this whole idea of regions. It is one of the most dangerous aspects of the way we analyze issues. It doesn't really matter what metric you use. Yes, they have, in many ways, a common religion and a common language and certain cultural features that are in common. In every other aspect of economic development, income, urbanization, 
technology, education. There is no MENA region. The countries are simply too different. And if you look across the map and you talk as we have in sort of peaceful civil terms, the civil war in Libya is perhaps paused, but probably not over. You have political turmoil in Algeria, in Tunisia. There are questions about what's happening in Egypt. Virtually the entire Levant faces major stability problems, particularly because of the Syrian civil war and its aftermath, but also Arab-Israeli tensions and a host of other issues, extremism, terrorism. Iraq remains unsettled. Iran certainly is not, shall we say, a source of stable, efficient development. And so we come down to really a handful of major oil and gas exporters who will be the countries truly affected by this. In all honesty, the Middle East is not a backwater today. But if you look at a map and you color in the countries, say, with a red crayon, that are troubled, that have very weak development problems and serious cases of violence, that's a majority of the countries in the region. And that is something that you have to face whenever you talk about this. And I'm afraid that's true of most parts of the world. This tendency to sum up trends by region simply doesn't reflect any particular reality of what's going on in most regions. So our friend uh, uh, Bill Lawrence has pointed out uh, that when I described Algeria as young, I was incorrect that their median age is 28, to which I would say to Bill Lawrence, uh, if you heard me going down the stairs this morning, 28 looks pretty darn young, but I take your point in a demographic sense. Um, we have another question from the audience. Um, uh, your read on Iran and its effect on global energy supplies, and uh, if that may affect Iran politically or not, if that's a separate issue. Well, I think so far, Iran has managed to export successfully to the extent that it's developed its resources. It has certainly not done a particularly good job of expanding its capabilities. And it is one of the oddities that it has massive gas resources, which could be, <clears throat> according to the models of sort of limited efforts to deal with climate change, the fuel of the future. And so far, it seems to be having a contest with Iraq to see who can do the most desperately incompetent job of developing these resources. I'd say probably given the flaring issues in Iraq, it is the world's winner as the worst managed developer of gas resources in the world. But Iran is pretty close. The problem, of course, is if gas does become the fuel of the future, Iran has time to actually make gas a critical aspect of its exports. 
if it doesn't, then not having actually exported a potential resource is something that doesn't necessarily have a future. And where it fits in terms of future energy balances, I think, frankly, increases in oil and gas in, sorry, oil will be relatively limited. The real question for Iran is, can it be stable enough and develop properly enough to really take advantage of gas exports? Well, at least there's a window to use that income. Yeah. And, and of course, that issue of political stability uh, before investment, and when we talk investment, we're talking primarily Western investment, I think is it's a, the, the threshold of instability for capital is a lot lower now that we saw BP have to eliminate, what was it, a $3 billion investment in Russia that they just had to liquidate and write off. And I believe that was the second time they had a major write-off in Russian gas. So, um yeah, it's a very good point. Um, another audience question. Uh, what would be the effect on GCC if there actually was uh, a contretemps over Taiwan? Um, would they redirect? Would they uh, store? Would they um, uh, try to find other ways to uh, or make it to that market? Well, at this point in time, you have to always ask if there is a war over Taiwan, how localized will it be? Will it actually be a major invasion or a sort of test of power between Taiwan and the United States and mainland China? How far will it spread into the rest of Asia? Does it affect the Pacific, at least outside the Strait of Malacca? If so, how far does it go far enough to have any impact on the Indian Ocean? These are things we simply have absolutely no ability to predict. You can have worst cases of escalation where Taiwan is the beginning of a much more serious regional conflict, or you can have a kind of test confrontation in which both sides exchange some limited use of force, as they often did in the past, and basically move back to some kind of stalemate. There's no real way to know. I think that all of us who have lived through history, even if it's only the history of the Cold War, realize how difficult it is to predict the level of escalation and how far you go in a given conflict. And so it's very hard to know what the impact will be on the GCC states. It's even harder to know what happens if this is a regional sort of struggle for influence between the United States and the West and China. If Russia and OPEC plus becomes in some ways tied to the rivalry between the great powers. It isn't just a matter of Taiwan, it's a matter of Taiwan is the current focus, but if this becomes a much broader competition between China, the United States 
Japan, Korea, Australia, and Europe. Then it can be something that involves the entire Pacific, the rest of Asia, and the Indian Ocean. And where does India stand in terms of its alignments? It has tended to improve its relations with the US, but still is largely dependent on Russian military equipment, even though it, India, has tensions with China. So you look at these uncertainties and how will they affect the flow of energy coming out of the Gulf and the Middle East, given all the uncertainties over climate change? That's one of the reasons that I think when you talk about predicting the future right now, you simply don't have a meaningful basis to do it. Yeah. Well, that's, what is it, Yogi Berra, always hard to make predictions, especially about the future. Uh, you, you raise a good point. We tend to forget, uh, maybe it's a function of the media or the, the academic climate that we're in now. People think of conflict over between China and Taiwan as opening Pandora's box. But yeah, in the 1950s, there were uh, routine shellings across the straits at each other, Kuimoy and Matsu. Uh, there was air-to-air -air combat between Taiwanese forces with American jets fighting Chinese forces fighting with uh, uh, Russian jets, uh, some evidence of involvement of Russian pilots flying there. Um, so, you know, the conflict, if there, there can be conflict and it can be localized. It has been in the past uh, without uh, billing out in there. Um, question about Europe's response to um, the Russia-Ukraine war. And if that is a unique, you know, that they've been rather flexible. I think a lot of people have been surprised. You mentioned that there was a mild winter. Uh, is that a model for the future or is that a specifically European thing that both geography, the fact that there's major gas producers to their north and to their south, um, and that they have the, they had the infrastructure in place to, ramp up uh, alternatives to uh, Germany not decommissioning nuclear power plants as fast as they had said they were going to. Is that a unique one-off or is that a model for the future of resiliency in the event of energy disruption? Well, it's been interesting to watch Europe because you've seen very different patterns in terms of inflationary effects from the war. And this is inevitably had an interaction with the rise in energy costs in shifting to imports. So one has to be careful. Again, it's almost a case by case. It isn't a matter of regions, it's a case by country. If you were dependent on imports before this, you've seen the prices rise for oil and gas on an international level. And if you were outside of Europe, you've had to adjust as best you can. I think that, oddly enough, in some ways for many countries, the problem of the impact of the war on grain costs has probably been more serious in terms of inflationary and other effects than the rise or shift in energy prices. But virtually any country over time can diversify its energy resources. And there certainly is a sort of large enough margin of exports as long as 
Russia can and is exporting to the rest of the world rather than Europe and is freeing up energy export resources to go to countries outside of Russia or outside of China, you don't have an immediate critical issue. I think, though, that your question becomes far more serious if we have a truly major conflict between the US and China. That certainly affects energy balances in ways no one can predict. And where countries that have, at this point in time, never really considered import dependence would suddenly have an issue. As we talked about earlier, simply converting out of fossil fuels is already an import challenge or a capital challenge to most of these countries. But it is a case-by-case -case issue. And I think one real question here, we've not yet seen Europe fully commit itself to finding alternatives to dependence on Russian gas and Russian oil. The studies that just came out last week from the International Energy Agency talk about this shift, but it's still a limited one. And again, we don't know yet what's going to happen in terms of this war between the Ukraine and Russia and how much that's going to spill over into increased tension and the future of European energy imports. Mm -hmm. um, I want to go back to this uh, U.S. energy interdependence, uh, if we can put up slide 122, because that's that's a hard one, I think, for most people to get. I think it's kind of in the nature of, of folks to when they think about international trade, I think our default position is mercantilism. You know, if we're selling more, then we're we're better off. And to make that sort of Henry Ford-like leap that I can't get rich unless the people who work for me can afford to buy the cars I make, that's that's kind of a a subtle and advanced argument that requires a lot of um, deep thinking, or at least thinking beyond oneself. Um, when we look at the rate of U.S. imports and exports. I know that, uh, you know, in the U.S. political discourse, imports are just seen as inherently bad. Uh, you know, why should we import anything? We can't be rich if we, if we have to import something. So can you just elaborate on this a bit more? I know we've, we've, we've touched on it at the start, but it's, it's, a, it's a complex and subtle point that I don't think uh, certainly I've done justice to in this talk. I'm not sure that we do justice to it in the United States. I think Americans have noticed politically that basically the days in which we were a dominant manufacturing supplier to the world are over. Certainly you've seen a shift away from manufacturing within the American economy. And people are aware of this because they see that in terms of shifts in jobs, a cutback in manufacturing jobs in scattered sort of manufacturing facilities. But we probably, most of us, have never seen the numbers. When you look at the numbers, and it almost doesn't matter who's modeling it, 
you see that America's share of manufacturing has gone down massively and China's share has sharply increased. You see that's true of a lot of Asian states, although the more developed Asian states like Japan and South Korea have not increased their share all that much. So yes, have we perceived where America stands in manufacturing and its industrial base? Most of us haven't. We've just sort of lived quietly with the change. And if we look around our house and consider where the refrigerator and everything else really came from, we actually probably realize that if we were talking about this 30 years ago, almost everything would have come from the United States. You know, you have to be almost as old as I am to remember an American-made television set. <laughs> and that's something where I think perhaps if you haven't thought out our dependence on global production and exports clearly, just think what happened during COVID. American manufacturers, companies like Apple, turned out to actually be importing from China. And American car manufacturers turned out to be unable to make cars in some cases or finish cars because they couldn't import part of the car, particularly electronics, but other parts. We are dependent today on world trade. Finding the right balance is critical. Ensuring that we keep our lead in advanced technology is critical. But the days in which we were the arsenal of democracy to the point where the United States could stand on its own in terms of global manufacturing are over. And while we have legislative policy that is going to help reduce some of the risks in that dependence, it's not going to eliminate it. Certainly not according to any legislation or any economic trends we can see today. Uh, yeah, and to build on that, if we take a look at slide 125, uh, that kind of shows uh, a little bit more of how uh, our dependence is on other oil and gas importing countries. So even if we manage to drill, baby, drill, take care of ourselves, uh, we're not going to have prosperous trading partners uh, without that. So uh, once again, number two, that yeah. and you hit on a key issue. Some of those are critical strategic partners. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not. We talk about a war in Taiwan, but remember that we depend on our alliance with Japan. We depend on our alliance with Korea. We've just seen a return to our ties to the Philippines. It isn't a matter of the U.S. sort of existing by itself in the world. The same is true of Europe our critical strategic partners in dealing with Russia are largely European. They're mm -hmm. also a major source of exports to the United States. 
this interdependence is a matter of partnerships. It needs to be managed carefully. It isn't something where the U.S. can somehow not produce, compete, need to develop all of its manufacturing capabilities as competitively as possible. But if you look at that chart, there's no way we can isolate ourselves. We aren't going to be independent of the world. Yeah. So final question. Uh, if you were advising the U.S. government, what is the government doing right and what does it need to do to maintain the U.S. strategic position? Well, the U.S. strategic position involves virtually every aspect of the American economy, American education, American society, manufacturing capability, energy production, and energy use. So if we have another four or five days to extend this session, uh, I could probably at least try to guess at all of the issues. I think one thing we are doing very well so far, we are dealing with the issue of the Ukraine. We are making it clear to Russia that there is not an ability to use this as the preface to displacing US influence and capability as part of the alliance of the free world. We are reacting to the growth of China. We may at times have gone too far. We may need to focus more on cooperation as an alternative to confrontation. But in general, I think we have done quite well. In terms of basically creating our own oil and gas resources, I think those we have done. What we have not yet done is clearly adapt to the challenge of global warming. I'm not sure that we can somehow rush out and anticipate how serious it should be, how much we should rush alternative energy supplies. To some extent, when you talk about what we should do, the answer is if we don't have a way of knowing what we should do, we probably aren't going to do very well at it. And that's the case in a lot of issues. You can politicize them, you can have partisan debates, you can pick out some one individual area that is your personal focus. And whether that's the environment or it is manufacturing or it's investment or it's education, you can sort of focus on that alone. But the problem is that we have to deal in the real world with all of these issues at once and all of the uncertainties. So in any given area, should we be doing better? The answer is always yes. Is there some critical area where we're failing? Well, it does bother me that when I turn to the Energy Information Agency, I don't see an explicit look at the problems of global warming as I do when I look at the energy projections of the International Energy Agency. It does bother me that it has taken us so long to take a hard look 
at the economic impact of China and our manufacturing and technology sector. It bothers me that one of the issues that really gets very little attention is are we doing enough to educate and develop the capability to maintain our lead in science, technology, engineering, this whole host of areas where we've had a critical lead in the past. But the list goes on and on. And I think that's part of the problem. Are we ready, even in academic circles, to deal with complexity? Or are we going to be attempting to talk about the future of America as if it could be addressed as a series of parallel ones? Well, I tell you, that's a, a, a complex issue of government, and I can't imagine a better place to stop and thank our speaker. I want to let you know that this is the first of two events. So uh, Dr. Korsman has produced two magisterial works. The first deals with energy. The second deals with uh, security and civil instability issues in the Middle East. Uh, we'll be doing that here in the National Council on March 14th. So, uh, you know, write it down now. Uh, go to the National Council website. Uh, get on their mailing list and they'll push the... Uh, not just the link to the publication, but also the uh, invite to participate in that. We had a few questions we weren't able to get to, and I apologize for that. Um, the, the lesson is ask your questions early and often. Um, by the time we're in the last 10 minutes, it's just hard for me to get to that, and I apologize. Uh, I want to thank uh, Pat Mancino and all the other organizers of the National Council, uh, John Duke Anthony, who unfortunately is not with us today, for providing this forum. And once on behalf of all the uh, uh, thousands of people watching remotely, I want to thank our speaker, Dr. Cordesman, for taking his time to go into such depth on such a broad-ranging um, uh, product uh, and covering, I, I was just looking at these issues, environmental change, security, energy policy, education policy, national budget, de development priority, and most importantly, uh, statistical clarity and discipline, which I think is the basis of all learning in government. So uh, thank to you, Dr. Korsman, and thank you to the organizers. And uh, with that, I wish you the best and hope for a good day. Let me hand it back over to Dr. Mancino. Well, uh, David, uh, doctor is way too generous, but uh, uh, I'm probably the kid that sat in the corner. Um, but no, I just wanted, on behalf of the National Council, our, our board and, and management and staff, I just want to reiterate, um, Dave, um, your renewed thanks to, to Dr. Cordesman for providing his wisdom and, and sage advice um, and analytical uh, clarity and, and sharpness. Um, if you just look at the table of contents alone in this paper, um, it, it, it blows you away. So um, Dr. Cordesman, um, again, uh, thank you. David, um, you know, we're, we're thrilled uh, and lucky to have you as a, as a uh, member of our International uh, Advisory Committee. Thank you for your service and, and thank you for helping us guide us through uh, today's complex topics. Uh, and um, we'll see everyone again with Dr. Cordesman uh, on the 14th of March. Uh, we'll have another event in between on the 8th of March uh, with two uh, distinguished uh, former United States uh, diplomats who served in the uh, Gulf Cooperation Council uh, and the GCC Arabian Peninsula region, as well as some commentary uh, about Ukraine, China, 
since uh, they, they also have that uh, specialization um, as well. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you, uh, Dr. Cordesman. Thank you again, and, and David, uh, uh, good luck uh, with the Anaheim-Washington uh, Capitals game tonight and may the best team win. So uh, we're not gonna get into those uh, statistical uh, uh, assertions here or uh, uh, Jimmy the Greek, you know, but uh, we'll let you go. Thank you so much, everybody.